So today, we are at the peak of the season of Epiphany. We read the story about Jesus being transfigured before Peter, James, and John on Mount Tabor, the middle mountain. In the gospel, we have the mountain of the Beatitudes, where Jesus announces his agenda. This is who I am. This is the way that I reign. This is what it will mean for my kingdom to come. The final mountain, of course, is Golgotha, where he enacts his reign, accomplishes his victory. And this mountain is the mountain that is his enthronement, the the ceremony of his enthronement as the king of the kingdom of God. And it is the peak of epiphany, the peak of revelation, and it is also the most mystical moment in all of scripture and in all of human history. It's the moment in which Jesus' humanity, including his clothes, are taken up into the divine life. And that story, that unbelievably mystical story, is echoing, repeating in some way, the story of Moses' ascent to the mountain. Let let me read that before I say more. Exodus 24, I'm reading today from a Bible one of my students gave me. It's the African-American History Bible, Exodus 24. And listen to this account of Moses' ascent of Sinai and his encounter with the glory of God and see the ways in which Jesus experienced, Peter, James, and John's experience replicates that, reintroduces it to us. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me into the mountain and be there. And I will give you tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. And Moses rose up and his servant Joshua And Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said to the elders, tarry here for us, tarry here for us, until we come again to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If anyone has any matters that need tending, let him come to them. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode on the mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Remember that detail. The cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The seventh day, God called. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud. He went into the midst of the cloud and Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. And you can see here, this is the moment of Moses' epiphany, the moment in which he comes to see God as God is and to hear God's agenda, to hear what it is that God wants done in Israel for the sake of the world. It takes Moses 80 years to come to this moment, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. Now he's finally ready. And the call of God is, come to me on the mount. I will meet with you. Moses makes the move. He and Joshua ascend the mount. He says to the elders, Aaron and Hur will adjudicate all the disputes while I'm away. And he ascends into the mount and waits. God's glory descends. For six days, he waits. And then he enters the cloud 
and spends 40 days communing with God in the cloud of light at the peak. Jesus' story, of course, begins in the previous chapter with Peter's confession. Jesus relates to them, he wants to know, what are people saying about me? What's the word on the street about me? And they they give him various feedback, and then he says, what do you think? Who do you think I am? And they say, one of the things that's easy to miss, by the way, is how much of a whirlwind this is actually for them. Like, so in, in our minds, we think of this as a kind of prolonged, leisurely career that Jesus has. But in the Gospels, everything happens in a really compressed schedule. In the Gospel of Matthew, for, for instance, it's less than a year between his baptism and his death. So many of these disciples, they hardly know what they've been caught up in. They don't know Jesus well. They don't know what he's intending exactly. That's one of the reasons they keep making mistakes. They keep missing his point because he, they're new to him. Right? They don't have years and years and years of training. They, they don't come to this with deep acquaintance with him. They don't come to this as experts in his theology or his missionary agenda. They don't quite know what's up. And we can see that, right, when we read the Gospels closely. So Jesus says, what, who do you think I am? And of course, they all go quiet except for Peter. And Peter speaks up to say, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, what? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father. But my father. This is important because at Jesus' baptism, which again for them was only a few months previous, at Jesus' baptism, what is it that the Father's voice says? A voice, the heavens open and a voice speaks as the dove descends. And what does the Father say? This is my son, my beloved. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now here is Peter when he's asked, who am I? By Jesus, what comes up out of him is that same truth. You are the son. You're the beloved. You are the son of the living God. And of course, what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is that voice speaks again. So you have God speaking over the son, Peter confessing Jesus as the son, and then the father reiterating, this is my son. Listen to him. So those, those stories hold together. Strikingly, this is all God says about Jesus. This is my son, my beloved, listen to him. He pleases me. This is all God has to say about Jesus. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are the ones who get to hear it again, get it sealed in them. But of course, what's remarkable about this, you've already guessed, is that in that moment, right after Peter's confession, Jesus goes on to say what is going to happen to him. Yes, Peter, you're right. That is who I am. The Father has revealed this to you. And now I must go to Jerusalem. I will be betrayed. I will be taken into the hands of the wicked men. They will kill me. On the third day, I will rise again. And what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside. He takes Jesus aside. More or less. I almost said literally, but that's probably not quite literally. But essentially gets Jesus by the scruff of the neck and pulls him to the side and reads him the riot act. No, you will not. What are you talking about, right? And it comes from, it's easy to mock Peter, but I think, I think we have to recognize this comes from a place of love for Jesus and a sense of, I believe in you. You've got to believe in yourself. 
Right? This, is, this is one of those pep talks that friends give each other sometimes. Friends give each other sometimes, right? It's, I think it's deeply well-intentioned. I think Peter, one of the reasons that God entrusts him with the church as the head of the church is because he's always thinking about the people who are around him. And he's willing to stick his own neck out on their behalf, right? Later in the story, of course, when they come to arrest Jesus, who is the one who takes up a sword to defend Jesus? Peter does. Again, completely missing the point, totally against the will of God, but in the best possible way, right? With the best of intentions, right? Which, by the way, that should tell us a lot about our best intentions. And very often, the most damage the most damaging things we do are born up out of our confidence that we're acting in good faith. That we're doing what needs to be done, not out of a place of arrogance, not out of a place of mean, mean-spiritedness, but just out of, I love these people and I want to help. But sometimes the best way to help is to just leave room for God to do what you cannot. Now I'm meddling, so I'm going to come back to the sermon. Sorry about that. So they, they're taken up on the mount. And, and notice... Peter is taken up on the mount, taken up. Now, what had Peter done in the previous chapter? Just a few days before, not quite a week before, he had taken Jesus aside and rebuked him. But now Jesus takes him up the mountain. And this is the shift that has to happen for all of us over and over and over again. This is what we call repentance. That's where you let Jesus take you aside to talk to you about the ways you've been taking him aside. You've been putting your hands on what he's doing instead of letting him touch you and lead you. And so now Peter is taken up the mountain. And this is remarkable, right? That Jesus has just had to rebuke him a week before. And now six days later, six days later, Jesus takes him with him right up the mount and Jesus is transfigured before him. And this is that mystical moment in which the light of God shines from within Jesus. Now remember in the passage we read in Exodus, the fire descends upon the mountain and Moses enters it. Right, the glory of God like a devouring fire. Not a devouring fire, but like a devouring flower. flower. Man, (laughs) this is one of the, the the stroke has really helped with the poetry, right? (laughs) Devouring fire descends on the mountain and Moses enters it. But notice, it's, a, it's an appearance of fire. It's a sign of God's glory. But at the peak of the Mount Tabor, the fire of God shines from within Jesus' bones and body, radiates even his clothes. But this is not a devouring fire, it's an illuminating light. That the devouring fire, fire goodness, guys, just, just enjoy it with me. The devouring flower, we're just going to go with it, (laughs) flowers out from within Jesus. See? It works. That the, The fire of God is just a sign of the light of God that Jesus is. Again, this is the most mystical moment in all of Scripture, in all of history, in which God, in the flesh, lets them see with clarity what happens to humanity and to creation when God's light is all in all. His face shines like the sun and his clothes become white as the light. He becomes clear. They see him as he is. And right in that moment, what does Peter say? 
Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, he's learned a little bit from the rebuke he took a week before. If you wish, I will build three tabernacles, three booths. And there's no response. Jesus doesn't say anything to him. He doesn't rebuke Peter again. Moses and Elijah don't say anything. And instead, a cloud descends. The cloud that we saw in the Exodus story descends on them. That bright cloud. You hear the paradox? It's a cloud of light. It's a cloud of brightness. Father Brent just a moment ago talked about the horrible wonderfulness of Lent. That's what we're talking about. A bright cloud, a shining darkness descends on them. The very shining darkness into which Moses had entered. It's easy again to mock Peter for this, to think he's made some mistake. I, th- I think again, it's not so much that Peter has made a mistake as that he's selling short the goodness God has toward him. It's, it's not so much that he's satanic here. Right? In, in that previous exchange, Jesus had said to him, get behind me, Peter, or get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of human beings, not the things of God. And there's so much about this passage, I talk about it a little bit in the book, that's not an advertisement, it's just happens to be the case that, okay, maybe it was a little bit, but I talk about this in the book. One of the things that's striking about that moment is we often hear that as Jesus making an accusation, name calling. I know none of you ever do this, but in my worst moments, what comes up out of me is name calling. Like I end up saying things to people, calling them names. I mean, these, every Sunday when you are repenting or trying to think of what you should be repenting of, I have very specific things I can recall to repent of. And one of them is this, like that sometimes offhandedly, even jokingly, I will, I will name people. But God doesn't do that. When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he's not calling Peter Satan. That's accusation. What he's doing is naming for Peter the evil that's at work in Peter's life. He's not calling Peter Satan. He's helping Peter recognize that Satan is at work. Bishop Ed, this week in a conversation, he said, God's judgment is naming things. God's judgment is naming things. That's what's happening here. Jesus is saying to Peter, look, Peter, this is satanic. And then what does Jesus do? If you you read the gospel closely, it says, and Jesus turned to the disciples and said, Jesus turned to the disciples. So if, if Peter and Jesus are having this confrontation, Peter has led him aside to read him the riot act, and Jesus is helping Peter see this is Satan, and then he turns, where is Peter now? Behind him. What does Jesus say? Get behind me. Why? Because that's where a disciple belongs. A follower of Jesus belongs behind Jesus. So notice what Jesus does. He tells him, this is what's going on in you, Satan. You should be behind me. And then he turns so that Peter is behind him. And then he leads up the mountain. Come with me. So the way that Jesus deals with the sin in our lives is to name it and then to put us in the position to follow him into revelation of who he is and who we are. And this is what Peter still hasn't gotten. When he says, it's good for us to be here, let us build three tabernacles, he's still thinking, 
Jesus, this is about us promoting you. We want to make you famous. We want to make your kingdom come. We want to do what we can do, Jesus, to establish your authority. Everyone should be able to come here to these three booths and see our teacher, our rabbi, is with Moses and Elijah. That will get everyone's attention. Let me go down the mountain and make the announcement. We'll get Father Brent to make the announcement. (laughs) That Jesus is on Mount Tabor with Moses and Elijah. That's big news. The point is, God is already building what it is Peter thinks he needs to build. So the reference to tabernacle and temple, of course, recalls the story of David. You remember, it comes into David's heart to build God a house. You remember how it, how it goes? David starts to feel guilty about how nice his house is compared to God's, right? First world guilt in the ancient world, apparently. <laughs> And David says, I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to build God a nicer house than I have for myself. And what does the prophet say? You do all that is in your heart. And the prophet walks out. As soon as the prophet gets out of the precincts, the spirit speaks to him and says, go back and tell David, I didn't ask for this. I'm going to build you a house. You don't build houses for me. I build houses for you. So what's happening on the peak of Tabor is Peter is saying, this is such a glorious moment. Let me build something that commemorates it, that that holds it, that houses it, so that the world can know who you are. And the response is the cloud settles on them. The cloud of the presence settles on them because they are the three tabernacles, Peter, James, and John, that God has already been building. You don't need to build anything, Peter. God is the one who's, he's the one who's building. He's the one who's making, and he's making you to be his presence. He's making you to be his house, his tabernacle. And that's what leads to the descent. Today, we're at the peak of epiphany. We're in the moment of fullest revelation of who God is, the most mystical moment of our lives. And on Wednesday, we will stand here and be marked with ash and be told that we are dust. Told that we are mortal. And then, almost 40 days after that, we will be told that God is dead. God has died. So we go from the peak of this moment into that horrible wonderfulness, that bright darkness of Lent, in which we grapple with the fact that we are sinners who are bound to death. We are dust. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. That's not an accident, right, that we move from that deeply mystical moment to this hard, ugly truth about our mortality and our sinfulness and what that means for us and what that means for God. So with that kind of framing, I just want to say a few things pastorally about what this means for us right here and right now. The first thing that, the first detail that strikes me in, in terms of what it means for me right now and my family and you 
is the ways in which waiting factors in these stories. Jesus says at the end of Matthew 16, right after the episode with with Peter, get behind me, Satan episode, Jesus says, some of you will not die before you see the kingdom come. And then the chapter we read today, Father Paul read for us, opens with, and six days later, he led them up into a mountain apart. And one of the things that's striking about that, right, is it, is it recalls the story of the Exodus and Moses' encounter with God, his peak of epiphany. But as I told you, Moses has to wait 80 years for that. 80 years, 40 in Egypt, 40 in the wilderness. Now he's finally ready. And when God calls him, come up to the mount to see me, what does Moses have to do? Wait six more days. Whereas here, with these disciples, they've been swept up into Jesus' revolution just months before, and now they're already rushing to this moment of revelation. So in, in in the Moses story, God is moving slowly, slowly. Moses, come up to me. Now, wait right there six days. Now, when we read scripture, we read with our minds mostly closed off, but imagine this. God invites you to come near And then you have to wait six more days after you've actually arrived before he speaks to you again. So you've waited 80 years, I guess, what's six more days? But you've waited 80 years. Why six more days? What is God doing here? Obviously, that's not necessary for God. Jesus can move quickly from Peter, leave your nets and follow me to, yes, I am the son of the living God. So why? And what does that have to do with the waiting you and I have to do? There are all kinds of things in our lives we are waiting on God to do. And we think, listen, if you can do it in six days, why do I have to wait 80 years in six days? Why do I have to wait for this to happen? This, this I think, is crucial. God's never requiring you to be patient for his sake. Whatever waiting you and I are doing, it's part of the good that God is working. Waiting is never a test. It's always a grace. If you're having to wait on something from God, it's not because God needs you to prove to him your trustworthiness. God doesn't put you on the wait list to see whether or not you're really committed. The waiting is a part of the healing The waiting is an aspect of the healing. This hit me this week because I was reading Gregory and he talked about why does God wait so long to be born? If human beings have fallen in Adam, I mean, forget the 80 years of Moses, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of years from the breaking through of sin to the birth of Jesus. Why does God wait? And Gregory says, so that the sickness can come fully, come, come to its fullness and the healing can be complete. But this, I want to say it a little bit differently, not to, forgive me, St. Gregory, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, but adding to what he said, that yes, it is about the sickness coming to full, but it's also because that waiting is already the healing at work. So hear me, I don't know what you're waiting on in your life. The waiting is not a problem that needs to be fixed. God is not waiting on something from you You're waiting on something from God. 
And God is not waiting for you to prove yourself. God is working goodness in you. The waiting is not wasted. The waiting is not wasted. Whatever you're waiting on, it is not wasted. Don't think that God has forgotten you or is trying to prove something to you or wanted you to prove something to him. The waiting is a grace. That's the first thing. He can do it suddenly, and when it happens, it will seem sudden, but all of that time is good for you. It is God makes all things beautiful in his time. What God is doing in the timing of his work in your life is inseparable from the good he's working. Don't rush. Don't rush. You don't need to rush. You don't need to push. Waiting is not in any way a punishment or a correction. It is a grace. It may work correction in your life, don't, don't feel the waiting as some kind of rebuke. There are things in your life that God wants to name, but you're not Satan. You're the beloved. God's name for you is beloved. He wants to help you name the things in you that are working against your belovedness. And that takes time. That's the first thing. The second thing is, this is astounding to me, what Moses says to the elders, we're going up to meet with God. Aaron and her can deal with all the fights. Think about that. We need to be realistic about it. I mean, a lot of you probably have seen on social media, there's a lot of talk right now about revival at Asbury and other places now, other schools, revival breaking out. One of the things that I love about scripture is that it's never naive about the fact that even when God is moving and acting, people still fight with each other. Moses is saying, listen, God has called us to go up the mountain, and that doesn't mean that as long as I'm up there in the mountain, everything is going to work down here. You're going to bite each other's heads off. You are going to stab each other in the back. You are going to mistreat each other. And while I'm gone, Aaron and her can handle it. Now, how Aaron and her felt about this, I don't know, right? But Moses trusts them to it. And this, I think, again is such a beautiful moment to recognize God's work in your life doesn't mean everything is gonna be fine. There's gonna be trouble. It can be handled. You have to give your attention to the things that matter most. And one of the, one of the reasons we celebrate Lent, and celebrate is the right word, is that we're saying to God, listen, I'm not gonna get everything sorted in my life before I turn my attention to you. I'm not going to settle everything and then come to you. I'm going to say, God, I'm coming to you. And some of the stuff in my life is going to have to be handled by other people because my attention is going to be on you. And I think all of us need to hear this repeatedly. The most important thing in your life is to keep your prayer open to God. Pray without ceasing. And in the busyness of life, as most of us know it, prayer is what we do as an interruption to everything else we're trying to handle. We are people who are called to be, first of all, people of prayer, who learn to work while we're praying. Meister Eckhart has this wonderful sermon about Mary and Martha. You know, we've all heard that story, right? Martha is in the kitchen, busy with... Notice the text doesn't say she was in the kitchen. We assume that because we think that's where a woman is, the text does not say she was in the kitchen. It just says she's busy. 
For all we know, she was, you know, meeting in the boardroom with a bunch of people trading stocks. I don't know what she was doing, right? She was busy. She might've been at the gun range. I don't know what she was doing, right? But she was busy and Mary's at Jesus' feet. And of course, you've all heard the story. We have to be like Mary and that's true. But Meister Eckhart makes this wonderful point. What if Martha has learned to pray while she works and Mary hasn't learned that yet? What if Martha's frustration is, listen, I can do it. I can be at the boardroom telling people what to buy and sell and also pray at the same time. Why can't you? But the, the key point is we have to learn to be people of prayer and learn to pray while we do the stuff of life. But know that sometimes you're going to have to just let the stuff of life be what it is. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, Jesus says. Keep your heart open to God. That's what matters most. And then finally. So Peter and James and, Peter and, James and John are on this mountain. Jesus is suddenly radiant. Radiant with the uncreated light of God. And Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter says, this is good, let's build. The cloud descends on them. And the voice says, again, this is my beloved. Listen to him. This is my beloved. Listen to him. They fall on their faces. Striking detail. They didn't fall on their faces when they saw his light. They fell on their faces when they heard the voice. And when they fall on their faces, in awe, terrified, in, in the face of this mystery, what happens next? Did you notice it when Father Paul read? Jesus approaches them and touches them. He approaches them and he touches each one of them, touches them. And what does he say? Get up, don't be afraid. Now we are talking about the most mystical moment in scripture, the most mystical moment in the year, the most mystical moment in history. They see God in the flesh fully revealed, the clarity of his being. They hear the voice of God, identify him as the beloved. They're told to listen. And what does God say? Stand up and face me. I don't need you at my feet. Don't be afraid. Many of us have been discipled explicitly or implicitly into the belief that when God's majesty is revealed, we're meant to grovel. You remember at the end of the Job story, God appears in a whirlwind and Job falls on his face. And what does he say? I heard about you with the ear, now I've seen you with my eyes, and I abhor myself, I hate myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And I've heard and you've heard sermons that celebrate that moment as the peak of faithfulness. But notice, this is, this is not true. God doesn't respond to Job. This is the only time in scripture that someone repents and God does not say, you're forgiven because Job hadn't sinned. 
We know that because the very next thing that happens is God says to Job's friends, Job has not sinned in what he has said. You have sinned. So go to him and he will pray for you and I will forgive you. Job is conditioned to think that the majesty of God means his subjugation. That when God is revealed in glory, what God wants is for us to fall on our faces at his feet and say we're not worthy. But that's not what God wants from you. He doesn't want you to feel that you're not worthy to be loved by him. He wants you to know you are his, the apple of his eye, the pride of his heart, the love of his life, his bride, his child, his friend, his body. Get up. Don't be afraid. God the Father says over the Son, listen to him. And all Jesus says when he's got their ear is, meet me face to face. You have nothing to fear. And this, this is, and I, I really am done, but this is what hit me right between the eyes this week, like a lightning bolt, which sounds painful, it, it, and in some ways it is. But this recognition do you guys have any sense of what the last five, six years have been like for us? Not just the sanctuary, I mean for us as a species. Us as Americans and us as sanctuarians. We are so stressed out, all of us, all the time. We're not going to do this. It would be a terrible idea to do it. But if we all went around the room and talked about what's really going on in our lives... Guys, we are in a pressure cooker all the time. Our relationships are more strained than they've ever been. Our finances are more strained than they've ever been. Our sense of who we are is more challenged than it's ever been. We can't escape the noise. Some of us are caught in feedback loops where we only hear the same voices over and over again. Others of us are caught in this kind of open space in which we're hearing all kinds of voices and we have no idea which one to listen to at all. All of you, all of us, are in terribly stressful, anxious moment. I don't know that any of us have a real sense of just how afraid we actually are. How could we not be? Think about the pandemic or the war in Europe. Think about all of the political upheaval. Think about the racial challenges we're facing again in this generation. I mean, you don't need me to name it all. That's stuff we're all experiencing together. Again, not just as Americans or as Tulsans, as a species. The melting of glaciers, right, the changing of weather patterns, like all of that stuff. And not only are we facing it, but we're also facing myriad voices trying to name for us what that means. Not only do we have all of this trouble, we can't even agree that it is trouble or which trouble we should be facing. Like everything is so politicized and tied to economic incentives that we don't know how to orient. And here's the thing that hit me again, right between the eyes this week. We can't hear anything God is saying so long as we're afraid. The reason the first thing Jesus says after they've been told, listen to me, listen to him, is don't be afraid, is you can't hear anything else until you're not afraid. Father Brent and Mother Janice can tell you this. 
I know they can because they've told my wife and me this. When you are afraid, you're thinking from the lizard part of your brain. Am I right? And when you're thinking from that part of your brain, you're not thinking of whatsoever things are lovely, pure, honorable, and of good report. Right? That's the name-calling part of your brain. That's the part of your brain that makes Satan's eyes light up because you become useful right at that moment in ways that aren't true to who you are, that aren't true to what you actually want. And the only thing that's going to heal you is for God to be able to speak a word that takes you out of that space and into a place of confidence Yes, life is going to go on. Aaron and her, you're going to have to deal with fights because even when God is dwelling on the mountain in a consuming fire, people are still on Facebook. I heard just this week, this is so funny to me, all of this talk about the Asbury revival and I had a friend who was saying, yeah, it's all wonderful, but when I pulled into work today, somebody had blocked my parking space and it didn't feel so wonderful then. Right? Like that's what it means to be human. Like God is moving in this unprecedented generational way, but somebody got in my damn parking spot. Right? That's, how, that's what it means to be human. And when you feel stressed, you're always right at that limit. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Like we're all, maybe not all, 99.78 of us are right there most of the time. And this is what I want you to hear this morning. This is what I heard God saying to me and for you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Stand up, look me in the eyes, you belong here. Not down there on your faces. Not begging me to fix things. Stand up. We've gotta go down this mountain. There are people who need us. This is the turn. Stand with me and that way it'll force me to shut up. This is, this is what I want you to hear. God means for you to be equals. You're his bride. You're his sons and daughters. You're his friends. He doesn't need you on your face at his feet. And the people at the bottom of the mountain need you to get up and bring his presence down. Stop trying to build tabernacles. You are the tabernacle. Everywhere you go, when we leave today, when we're sent out of here, when we're scattered as the people of God, every restaurant we walk into, we walk into bearing his presence. And either our anxiety is going to talk or his love is going to talk. Either our anxiety is going to be written on our faces or the light of God is going to shine on our countenance. Every person you meet this week, including those people who live in the house with you and share a table with you, including people that you're going to pass on the road, including people that you're going to meet at lunch or dinner, the people you're going to see when you're out with friends, all of those people are in desperate need of a non-anxious, life-giving light and it's in you. Don't be afraid. Amen.